There you go. Arthur Pink, <clears throat> Spiritual Growth, number eight, I believe. And uh, we're on number, chapter number seven, It's Stages. And uh, just a very edifying book, very helpful. In the last chapter, we called attention to the fact that Christians may be graded into the three classes according to their stature in Christ or their spiritual development and progress. In proof thereof, appeal was made to Mark 4.28 and 1 John 2.13. In addition to these passages, we may now also take note of our Lord's parable of the wheat, wherein he represented the good ground hearers as bringing forth fruit in varying degrees or quantities. That parable is recorded in each of the three Gospels, and there is, among others, this noticeable difference between their several statements. <coughs> that Mark says those who receive the word, they bring forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100 for 420. Whereas in Matthew's account, the order is reversed. <clears throat> uh, brought forth some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. 1323. Evidently, the same parable was uttered by our Lord on different occasions, and he did not employ precisely the same language. The Holy Spirit guiding each evangelist according to the particular design of that gospel. Since Matthew is the opening book of the New Testament, it is obviously the connecting link between it and the Old. And accordingly, the nature of its contents differ considerably from that of the three which follow. The prophetic element is far more prominent, and its dispensational character is more marked. <clears throat> Many regard the parables of Matthew 13 as supplying a prophetic outline of the history of Christendom. Personally, we still believe in that view. I think he's wrong, but anyway. That instead of its course being steadily upwards, it was to be... Uh, Instead of its core being steadily upwards, it would be definitely downwards, and so that, far from the gospel converting the world to Christ, the sage would witness the whole public testimony of God being corrupted. And that's, I, think, I believe, an error. Thus, we regard the hundredfold of Matthew 13.23 as being descriptive of the primary prosperity of Christianity in the days of the apostles, the 60, the noticeably, noticeable and lesser yield during the times of the Reformers and Puritans, and the 30 is that which resulted from the labors of men like Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and later Spurgeon. Well, today, nothing is left but the mere gleanings of the harvest. Let me just stop for a moment. What was accomplished under the Reformers? Uh, although the work of the Apostles was amazing, and churches were throughout the whole Roman Empire, but there were many more people converted during the days of the Reformation than in the early days of the church. <clears throat> Thus, of course, this Christian dispensation has been far different, very similar to that of the Mosaical, with its reformations in the days of David and then of Ezra, but ending as Malachi shows. But in Mark 4.20, it is not the corporate testimony which is in view, but the spiritual experience of individual believers. And brought forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100, which corresponds with the three gates of verse 28, first the blade, then the ear, after the full corn in the ear. And the apostles' more definite description I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children or babes because ye have known the father. As Thomas Goodwin pointed out, John, quote, had an advantage over his fellow apostles, all his fellow apostles, in that he lived longest of them, so that in the course of his life he went through the several ages or seasons that Christians do, and having also had the experience of other Christians, and what was eminently in and proper to each age of men in Christ, writes to all sorts accordingly, and sets down what things spiritual belonged in those several stages. In the preceding chapter, we dwelt among some of the features which characterized the babes or little children, pointing out that those very designations intimate that which distinguishes them from the young men and fathers. 
For God has made the natural to show forth the spiritual. Brethren, be not children in understanding, 1 Corinthians 14.20. As in young children's reason is undeveloped, so the spiritual babe there is but a feeble apprehension of the deeper things of God. Yet as that exhortation shows, the believer ought soon to pass out of the stage of infancy. What is said of them in 1 John 2.13 describes another mark. You have known the Father. Little children acknowledge their parents, are dear to them, hang about them, can't endure be long absent from them. They expect to be much to be much noticed and fondled. And accordingly, it is said of the Good Shepherd, Isaiah 40, verse 10, excuse me, verse 11, he shall gather the lambs under his, with his arms and carry them in his bosom. Little ones must be dangled on the knees, cannot endure the frowns of a father, and are not yet strong enough for conflicts, and hence God tempers his providential dealings with them accordingly. The babe is tasted that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2, 3 and as yet knows not the fullness there is in him. Now the young convert is not to remain in a physical babe, but is bidden to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. Yea, to grow up in him in all things, Ephesians 4.15. God has made full provision for him to do so, and by his availing himself of that provision, he is honored and glorified. But the sad fact is that many Christians never do so and many others who run well for a while lapse back into the spiritual infancy. We are warned against this very danger by the solemn example of the Hebrews, to whom the apostle had to write, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when the time ye ought to have been teachers, ye have need that we teach you again, which is be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as ye need milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. That's 5.11 to 13. Three things marked those believers who had failed to advance in the school of Christ. First, they were dull of hearing, which connotes not slow-wittedness, but failure of affection and will to respond to the teaching they had received. They were unconcerned about what they had heard, unsearched by it, and consequently it affected no change for the better in their character and conduct. In Scripture, to hear God means to heed Him. To bring our ways and works in accord, into accord with His revealed will. God's Word is given to us as a rule to walk by, Psalm 119, 105. And walking signifies to go forward in the highway of holiness. Thus, to be dull of hearing is a species of self-will. It is a non-response to the call of God. It is to disregard His precepts. As intelligence begins to dawn, the first things required of a little child should be subjection to the will of those who have his best interest at heart. And the thing, first thing required by the father of his children is loving obedience to him. Spiritual babes need to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God. What were the first principles which God taught Adam and Eve in Eden? Why, that he was their maker and required obedience from them. Were they the first principles indicated by Jehovah at Sinai? Why? That Israel must be in dutiful subjection unto the one who had redeemed them from Egypt. And what were the first principles enunciated by Christ in his initial public address? His Sermon on the Mount must answer. The first principles of spirituality of genuine piety are personal faith in God and loving obedience to him. While they be in operation, the soul shall prosper and will make progress. As soon as they become inoperative, we deteriorate. Hence, <clears throat> the second thing complained of is... The Hebrews were unskillful, or literally inexperienced, in the word of righteousness. 
Observe a particular title by which the word is here called, that which emphasizes the practical side of things. They were not walking in the paths of righteousness, Psalm 23.3. They had degenerated into self-pleasers, followed, following by the byways of self-will. Third, they were incapable of receiving strong meat, the force of which may be gathered from verses 10 and 11. The apostle desired to open unto the Hebrews the mystery of Melchizedek and bring before them deeper teaching concerning the official glories of Christ. But their state cramped him. He must suit his instruction according to the condition of their hearts, as it was evidenced by their will, walk. He was similarly restrained by the case of the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. I unto you as... <clears throat> I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto, because of their perversity and naughtiness, you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able. That's not 3, 1, and 2. Milk is a figurative expression denoting precisely the same thing as the first principles of the oracles of God. Faith, obedience. As it would be senseless to teach a child grammar before he learned the alphabet, or arithmetic before he knew the value of the numerals, so it is useless to teach Christians the higher mysteries of the faith or to take an excursion into the realm of prophecy when they have not learned yet to be regulated by the practical teaching of Scripture. And just a side note, what do we have going on in evangelicalism today that's prominent? Well, people are obsessed with prophecy, and it's not even good teaching on prophecy. It's the eschatological fantasies of premillennialists, which are generally incorrect, Hal Lindsey and all that kind of stuff. They don't learn anything about sanctification. They don't learn anything about the law of God because they don't believe in the law of God. So they, they, they're into these prophecy conferences and all this prophecy stuff. When their families are falling apart and the divorce rate is high and the sexual immorality rate among young professing Christians is, is horrible. It's just slightly behind pagans. So Pink has a really good point here. But sad to say, uh, teachers are, are catering to itching ears and giving them prophecy conferences when what they need is sanctification conferences. Here then are the two chief reasons why so few Christians really advance beyond spiritual babyhood and become young men that are strong and who overcome the wicked one. Here are the worms which, it is to be feared, have been eating at the root of the spiritual life of some of our readers because they were dull, not of intellect, but of hearing. <clears throat> the Greek word for dull is rendered slothful in Hebrews 6 through 12. It denotes a state of slackness and inertia. It means they were too indolent to bestir themselves. They were spiritual sluggards. They were not willing to buy the truth, Proverbs 23, 23. Make it their own by incorporating it in their daily lives. They failed to gird up their loins of their minds, 1 Peter 1, 13. And earnestly and resolutely set about the task God appointed them, namely, to deny self and take up their cross daily and follow Christ. They did not lay to heart the precepts of the gospel and translate them into practice. They made no progress in practical godliness. Second, lack of progress was due to their being unskillful in the word of righteousness. The word righteousness means right doing, up to the required standard. God's word alone is the rule of righteousness, the standard by which all of our motives and actions are to be measured. The rule by which they are to be regulated. <clears throat> the word is to govern, govern us, both inwardly and outwardly. By that word of righteousness, each of us will be judged in the day to come. Now, it is not said that those Hebrews were ignorant of this word, but unskillful in it. 
The word unskillful means inexperienced. That is, inexperienced in the practical use they made of it. It may be thoroughly familiar with its letter, understand much of its literal meaning, able to quote correctly scores of its verses. Yet so far as serving any good purpose, it will only add to my condemnation if I am not controlled by it. To be unskillful in the word of righteousness means I have not yet learned how to mortify the flesh, overcome temptations, resist the devil. And as long as that be the case, if I am saved at all, I am only a spiritual infinite, undeveloped in, in the spiritual life. Another thing which holds back many a young convert from spiritual progress is his making too much of his initial experience. Unless he be on his guard, there is a great danger of making an idol out of the peace and joy which comes from the knowledge of sins forgiven. God requires us to walk by faith and not by feelings. For though the latter may be while please us, the former is that which honors him. And the faith which honors him is that which rests on his bare word when there are no feelings to buoy us up. Moreover, God is a jealous God and will not suffer us to esteem his gifts more highly than himself. If we are occupied with lively frames and inward comforts, then we are with God and Christ then we are with God in Christ, then he will take from us a sense of his comforts, and the soul will sink and be cast down under a sense of loss of them. In such case, Revelation 2.5 prescribes a remedy. The sin of idolatry must be pertinently confessed, and we must return to the storehouse of grace as a beggar, and make Christ our all. Many babes in Christ have the spiritual growth retarded by, negatively, the lack of suitable instruction, and positively by the cold water poured on their joy and ardor by their elders. It is neither necessary nor kind for some would-be wiseacres to tell them, this joy of yours will not last long. Your bright sky will soon be overcast with dark clouds. Many of them are likely to discover that soon enough for themselves, while others may live to disprove such doleful predictions. This writer was often told that he would quickly lose his assurance of God's acceptance of him in Christ, but that more than 35 years have passed since sovereign grace plucked him out of the fire, Zechariah 3.2, his assurance has never wavered nor weakened, for it has always rested on the unchanging word of him who cannot lie. Others are greatly stumbled by empty professors and the inconsistencies of some real Christians, and, the, and they allow that to keep them from striving after a closer walk with God. Many are kept weak in faith through failure to attain into a proper acquaintance with a pardon and work of, person and work of Christ. They do not realize how sufficient and able he was for everything he undertook to do for them, and how perfectly he finished the same. They have no clear views of either the fullness or the freeness of his so-called, of his so great salvation. Consequently, the legal spirit working within their, with their unbelief puts them upon reasoning against their being saved freely by grace through faith. Those unbelieving reasonings gain great powers over their defeats in their warfare between the flesh and the spirit or grace and nature. They hearken to and trust more on the reports of self than to the testimony of God's word. Thereby they fa their faith is checked in its growth and they remain but babes in Christ. And uh, by the way, this is a this is a problem with the Puritans. If you look at yourself and you look at your belly button and you focus on that too much and not on the Word of God, everybody will doubt their salvation, for we all far sh fall short of what God wants us to do every single day. So you you know he, he's making a great point here. You have to focus on the Word of God, and and not yes, there has to be self examination. But self-examination to the neglect of focusing on the Word of God leads everybody to doubt. And there are churches, especially the uh, among the, the strict Dutch and among some, some of the stricter Presbyterians, where almost no one comes to communion because they all feel themselves unworthy. 
And that's a great error. And that led to the Puritans falling apart. It really did, because the young people stopped coming to church because none of them felt they were saved, because they weren't focused enough on the Word of God. They appropriate not His promises nor trust in His faithfulness and power. Growth in grace and in the knowledge of Christ are inseparable. And experimental knowledge of Christ is utterly, entirely dependent upon the exercise of faith on Him. But we must pass on now to the second class. 1 John 2.14 I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Although the classification which this passage makes of the Lord's people does not regard them simply according to their natural ages, but according to the several degrees of stature in Christ, yet the characters given them are more or less taken from and assimilated unto uh, what prominently distinguishes each class in their natural life. Infants rejoice in the sight of their parents and in prattling to them. <coughs> Thus the spiritual babes are said to know the Father. Proverbs 20:29 20, tells us the glory of young men is their strength. And accordingly, those who reach the second stage of Christian development are termed young men. And it is said of them, ye are strong. Young men are renowned for their athletic vigor and are the ones called upon to fight in the defense of their country. And here they are pictured as victorious in conflict, as having overcome the wicked one. Roman numeral two. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. These, though these words were most certainly not written by the Apostle in order to flatter, but were, beyond doubt, a so sober statement of fact concerning those he addressed. Yet, because of our dullness of understanding, they are by no means free of difficulty to us. Therefore, as the Lord is pleased to enable, we shall endeavor to supply an answer to the following questions. Wherein do the young men differ from the babes? In what sense can they said to be strong? Is there such a thing as out growing spiritual weakness. Exactly what is signified by the word of God abiding in you. And are those words to be understand, understood as explaining the preceding clause are the ones that, that follow. In view of the many defeats which apparently all Christians experience, what is meant by ye have overcome the wicked one? Wherein do young men differ from babes? First, because having been longer engaged in the practice of godliness, they have learned more seriously to consider their ways in order that they may avoid sin and the occasions thereof. They have sufficiently acquainted themselves with God as to realize the need of watching, praying, striving both against inward corruptions and outward temptations. They frequently present but before the throne of grace such petitions as these. Teach me, O Lord, the ways of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me go to the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto the te thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Psalm 119, 33 to 36. Sins which formerly they regarded as blotted out by the general pardon received at conversion are now thought of, at, of with shame and bitterness. Second, they are more different in their use of means. Not that they necessarily devote more time thereto, but that they are more conscientious and spiritually exercised therein. As they have become increasingly acquainted with their corrupt inclinations, rebellious wills, the workings of unbelief and pride, they attend more closely to the basic duty, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 And accordingly they can truthfully say, Psalm 119.112, I have inclined my heart to perform my statutes there always, even to the end. Though they will often have to confess their lack of power to perform their desire. That makes them... <laughs> 
that makes them the more concerned to learn how to make use of the spiritual armor. <coughs> For none so conscious of its need and so earnest to put it on as this grade of believers. Third, they are better versed in the word of God. Though not so experienced and proficient in the word of righteousness as the fathers, yet they are not as unskillful as the babes. They have learned much in how personally to appropriate the scriptures, how to apply them to their several cases, circumstances, and needs. They long to make further progress in piety, and therefore they meditate in the law day and night. Deeply exercised that their daily lives may be pleasing to God and adorning to the profession which they made. They are concerned to inquire wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way and discover the answer to be <clears throat> by taking heed according to thy word. Psalm 119.9 Thus, they are daily furnishing themselves with spiritual knowledge and fortifying themselves with their, against their enemies. <clears throat> Fourth, that they have learned to look more outside of self. They neither make so much of inward comforts, nor do they learn so much under their own understanding as once they did. They look more to Christ and live more upon him. As formerly they trusted him for cleansing and righteousness, now they turn to him for wisdom and strength. They have discovered from experience that these can only be drawn from him by the exercise of faith. They have realized themselves to be poor, helpless creatures, continuously in need, and as having no means of their owning of their own to supply them. Thereby the Lord teaches them to live more out of themselves and more upon his fullness. When the enemy cometh and like in flood, they do not give way to despair, but trust Christ to renew their strength. Thus, by such means, they pass from the weakness of infancy and become young men. 1 John 2.14, I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. You have sought to describe some of the characteristic features of those we consider may justly be regarded as belonging to the class of Christians who have been designated young men, particularly as they are distinguished from the babes or little children. Let it be understood that when we wrote therein was in no spirit of dogmatism, but merely an expression of personal opinion. We consider that the spiritual young men are believers who have acquired the whole plan of doctrine set forth in the scriptures, though as yet lacking in the deeper understanding thereto as pertains to the fathers. To which we would add, they know whom they have believed and committed their all. For we would certainly regard a Christian without assurance that Christ is his as still but a babe, though we do not expect all will agree to that. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. How different are the ways of God's from men's, even those of good men. Many elderly Christians today would deem it most important to write or say to the younger brethren, you are strong and have overcome the wicked one, fearing that such an assertion was dangerous because having a strong tendency to puff up its recipients, which only goes to show how little some of our thoughts are formed by the word of God and how prone we all are to fleshly reasoning. Such an attitude is but a show of wisdom, Colossians 2.23, and a poor show at that, for it betrays both ignorance and silliness. Those who are strong spiritually are not at liberty to be puffed up by telling them the truth. Contrarywise, all who are puffed up by such a statement would demonstrate that they were weak. Let us not seek to be wise above what is written, but rather let us set aside our, our proud reasonings and receive what God says as a little child. In making the above assertion, the apostle certainly 
was certainly not seeking to flatter them, for he did not say, you have made yourself strong. Rather, he was making a factual statement. In doing so, he first honored the Holy Spirit by owning his work within them. The explanation of that statement of fact was the gracious operations of the Spirit in their hearts. Second, he was expressing his own joy. It was a matter of delight to him that they had, by the grace of God, reached this stage of spiritual health and vigor. Third, it was said by way of encouragement to them. If on the one hand it may be our duty to rebuke and reprove what is evil in fellow Christians, it equally be becomes us to recognize and own whether it is what it, whatever is good in them. A word of cheer and stimulus is often a real help. If there be a time to break down, there is also a time to build up. Ecclesiastes 3.3 Paul did not hesitate to tell the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. But what did the apostles signify by you are strong? Probably the majority of Christians would probably reply, why, only in the sense that they were strong in the Lord and the power of his might, Ephesians 6.10. 6, Yet we believe that answer is inadequate. And if the only insisted upon, erroneous. We are, hearty, we are heartily in accord with Thomas Goodwin, who pointed out, quote, There is a double spiritual strength, one that is radical and in the soul itself, consisting in the strength and vigor of habitual graces. The other is assistance thereto from the Spirit, according as he hath pleased to arm and fill the soul with himself, join with it by strengthening the graces in us, which we read of in Ephesians 3.16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. By nature, the Christian was entirely devoid of spiritual power. Writing to the saints at Rome, Paul said, 5-6, For when you were without strength, yet, for with you without strength in due time died for the, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that yet would be quite pointless if, if those to whom he were writing were still without strength. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love, and of the sound mind. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 We dishonor the work of the Blessed Spirit if we view the regenerate as being in the same helpless plight as the unregenerate. Every generation we receive spiritual life. And as Goodman pertinently asks, what is strength but life in its active vigor? Are we not told, the joy of the Lord is your strength? Nehemiah 8.10 that is, the more the believer delights himself in the Lord and rejoices in his perfections and his relation to him, the more will his soul be invigorated and his graces quickened. Graces quickened. Does not the psalmist acknowledge, Thou strengthenest me with strength in my soul, 138.3, so that he no longer is feeble in himself? But let it not be misunderstood at this point. We are not arguing in favor of any kind of strength being a part of the Christian, which renders him in any way why self-sufficient? No. Indeed, perish the thought. Even the fathers are as completely dependent, moment by moment, upon divine grace, as the youngest and feeblest babe in Christ. Paradoxical as it may sound to the carnal mind, the very strength which is communicated at the new birth makes its recipient conscience, conscious for the first time of his utter weakness. It is the purity of the new nature in the soul which makes manifest the corruptions of his flesh. It is his reception of the earnestness of his inheritance which makes him poor in spirit. It is the gift of faith which causes him to be sensible of the workings of unbelief. It is the life of God and the renewed which causes them to trust, to thirst, and pant after God. Nevertheless, there is a real sense in which the Christian is strong, both comparatively with the unregenerate impotency and relatively in himself. Proverbs 24.5, a wise man is strong, yea, a man of knowledge increaseth strength.
In proportion, as spiritual knowledge increases, so also does spiritual strength. The spirit is nourished and enriched both in its spiritual work and warfare by true wisdom. As we have so often reminded the reader, growth in grace and its spiritual knowledge are inseparably connected, 2 Peter 3.18. There is a strength of courage, a fortitude of resolution, which enables its, profess its professor to stand firm against opposition, to overcome difficulties, to endure trials and afflictions. But the reverse of that is expressed in, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small, Proverbs 24.10. If in the day of, te of testing... And trial spirit sinks so that your hands hang down and your knees become weak. If when affections come, you take the line of best resistance and neglect the means of grace and are unfit for duties, then your strength is small. And such an attitude will further weaken it. Unto such that word is especially appropriate. Psalm 27.4 Wait in the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. The order there is to be carefully noted. First, an acknowledgement of our dependence upon the Lord. Second, a being of good courage. Third, the divine promise unto those who are of good courage. Fourth, trusting God for the fulfillment of his promise of further strength. It is unto those that have that more is given. Matthew twenty four twenty nine. It is those who make use of the grace bestowed who receive larger supplies. God more, more ordinarily voucheth adjunct, extra assisting, efficacious grace to overcome temptations according to the measure of grace habitual or inherent. And thereby, when men, we are grown up to more radical inward strength, he gives more effectual assisting strength. And accordingly, he meeteth forth temptations to the ability of our inward man is furnished with all, so that we are able to bear them. 1 Corinthians 11, 10, 13. He vouchases his, this is Thomas Goodwin, by the way, his actual supplies of aiding strength according to his proportion of his inherent stock of ability, he sees in the inner man. And then, as the conflicts grow, greater our additional aids are therefore therewith increased. At the end of Thomas Goodwin. That's why the grammar is so bizarre. Without further quoting verbatim from this writer, we shall summarize and paraphrase his next paragraph. With which we are in hearty accord. The grace of God indeed works freely. And he ties himself absolutely to no rules and measures, but ever acts according to his own good pleasure. He takes liberty to withhold the supplies of assisting grace, even from those who have most inherent grace, to show us the weakness of all our grace as it is in us, withholding from the strong, Romans 15.1. He further, his further influence in grace, which moves us both to will and to do, to evidence that his grace is tied to none that we see both in David and Hezekiah, which they had grown up into this middle age in grace. Yet that alters not the fact that in his ordinary dispensations, God gives more grace to those who make good use of what they already have. John 15, 2, Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth that it may bear more fruit. The promise of being made fat is not to be a sluggard, but to the soul of the diligent. Proverbs 13, 4. To sum up, the apostles, young men, because you are strong, we understand that though using the means of grace by increased spiritual knowledge, by approaching the strength which is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.1, through the exercising the graces of the new man, by improving, profiting from the varied experiences through which they have passed, and by the assisting operations of the Holy Spirit, they have developed from babes into the higher spiritual stature, and were the better qualified to use their spiritual muscles. It is written, they that wait upon the Lord, which first not so much to enact as it is the description of an attitude found in the regenerate, who are in a healthy condition, shall renew their strength. <coughs> 
This is from Isaiah 40, verse 31. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There is such a thing as overcoming spiritual weakness or babyhood, but not of continual dependence on the Lord. There is such an experience as going on from strength to strength, Psalm 84, 7, though without Christ I can do nothing, John 15, 5, and yet him strengthening me, I can do all things, Philippians 4, 15, and we'll end there. Uh, we'll stop there. This is a long chapter. But this is very good stuff. And it's hard to keep all that in mind, but we've got to try to keep it in mind. Growing knowledge with a continued focus on Christ for your sanctification and a continued fight against the flesh and temptation. But we'll stop there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word of on sanctification. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be strong. To have a firm trust in your Son and not only his saving power, but his sanctifying power given to us. Cause us to walk uprightly, to meditate on your statutes and to obey them daily, to subdue the sinful flesh, to starve those things that are contrary to your word, and to feed on your word daily. In Jesus' name, amen.